on your phone. It's not like the cinema. It's not like Thursday night where we say turn it off, uh, but to um, uh, turn it on. And uh, a good version that I use uh, if I'm using my phone is the U version of the Bible or good old school paper, uh, should you want that. There's other ways of finding it. But Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through to 10. I'll just pick up in verse 3. Um, don't worry about that, um, Chris. Sorry, I didn't tell you that. Just uh, a reminder of where, where we kind of uh, began last week. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of God and our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than that which you accepted, let them be under God's curse. And am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Wow. Wow. Uh, remember, I, I introduced the, the theme in Galatians last week and, uh, and said that the Galatians in central Turkey, the churches in Galatia, were very receptive to the good news, to the gospel, to, to Jesus. They embraced that truth. They believed, they repented and believed and became followers, trusting in the fullness of the gospel in Jesus Christ. As uh, Luther would uh, describe it in Little Romans, he calls Galatians or Romans, faith uh, in Jesus alone, sola fide. Nothing added, justification through faith alone. Not through works so that no one can boast, writing of Paul in Ephesians. Jesus alone. And as Paul did, he planted churches and after a time of raising up leaders, he would move on. And uh, we know from the history of the early church in Galatians being the earliest letter, one of the earliest, probably the earliest of the entire New Testament in terms of its, uh, of its writing, of its origins. People came after him and began to undermine or change or challenge the gospel. And we hear that cry of, of anxiety, of, uh, of love, of passion for God's people, for the, for the gospel in these uh, um, five verses that we've read this evening. The gospel matters. Why? Why does it matter so much for Paul? Well, remember when Jesus was gathering his disciples, that's that uh, critical moment in, uh, in, in all of the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The, there comes that moment when the disciples, having been with Jesus, kind of begin to, it dawns on, the penny begins to drop, who am I? Who do people say I am, Jesus asks. And Peter is the first one to voice it in, uh, in this particular uh, instance in Matthew 16, verse 18. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're not an Old Testament prophet. You're not just 
a religious teacher. You are the promised Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is wonderfully uh, celebrating that and goes on to say, upon that confession, uh, Peter, of, uh, that you have said, that you've uttered, of the, of the revelation you've received from God, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, in, in the language of Matthew, of, 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 of the record of Jesus, we hear that the heart of faith is that confession, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, that belief, that trust in Christ alone. And then Jesus goes on to say, that's wonderful confession, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And with that in mind, I just want us to, to think, with Galatians particularly, and uh, in what Jesus might be saying, and, and kind of uh, alongside the themes we're having in the morning. That word prevail is important. The gates of hell, the, the, the opposition, the standing against the kingdom of God, of that conviction, that, that utterance, that confession, Jesus is Lord, that Satan will come against, that the devil, the opposition, the prince and palaces powers will stand against the gospel. They won't prevail. Prevail means, I looked it up uh, in one of those uh, books that tells you of cinnamons and so forth. Prevail means to win or win out or win through or triumph or be victorious or be the victor. Gain the victory, carry the day. Finish first, come out on top. Conquer, overcome, gain mastery or ascendancy. In other words, Jesus' truth will stand, but it will be opposed but it won't prevail. Do you understand what I'm saying? Prevail means that it will face opposition, but it won't be overcome. We see that in the story of the Galatian churches. I'm astonished that you so quickly desert the one you called. Why are the Galatians deserting? Why is it that the gospel is opposed and how is it opposed? I'm grateful for uh, Open Doors, and um, uh, we, we're delighted to be welcoming soon in our morning service at the end of the month uh, a guy called Ron Boyd-Williams. He's the guy from the videos that we're seeing in the morning. Uh, he, he provided some helpful insights and, and thoughts on this. And he, he kind of, in his experience and his understanding of church history and working within uh, the context of the persecuted churches, has begun to understand how is it that the church is prevailed against? How is it that the gospel is challenged? Now, obviously, we might begin to think of, of some ways, and we see this in, in Galatians, but he kind of um, speaks of four particular ways that a church and lots of churches can turn in on itself, can compromise. Um, and indeed, a lot of the New Testament is uh, perhaps describe other ways, but they can be summed up as threats to the church, threats to believers, church not being buildings but people, hostility, persecution, of errors, wrong belief and heresy, of which we see some in Galatians, and of behavior, of immorality, of things that would get into the local congregation and tear it apart from within. That we're not immune to this challenge. We may not be under the oppression of a dictator state or a hostile outside, but we are all prone to be prevailed against. Why? Because the persecutor, the opponent of God, embodied in, in Satan, is against him and against his people. 
Someone phrased it like this, the persecutor thinks about you even if you don't think about persecution. That's not to alarm you. We've sung, we're no longer slaves to fear. There are times when persecution is blunt and opposition and seeking to stamp out the church is, is blunt and they can be successful. But it seems to be that the evidence is that good, good persecutors, if that's not a contradiction in terms, good persecutors, I'm not suggesting you take notes. Well, I am, but you know, I'm not asking you to become a good persecutor. But I am asking you to be aware of the schemes. Good persecutors are often subtle. And in their subtlety, they're often successful. There was uh, an early... Um, in the, early, in the story of the early church, there were quite a lot of emperors who sought to stamp out the Christian faith. Nero, for example, uh, Domitian, others. They were brutal in their harassment, their persecution, and their cruelty. Nero is reported to, you know, if you visit the Colosseum in Rome, of, you know, they debate it a little bit, but of, of Christians being killed with lions and gladiators and all sorts of unpleasant ways in order to to get people to stop to give up or lighting avenues you know putting them on sticks and setting them alight and letting them light the night sky i mean horrific but they found that it didn't really have that effect martyrdom as i'll explain in a minute tends to cause people to gather and grow strong. There was an emperor called Decius, and, and in uh, 250 AD, Decius is said to have issued one of the most remarkable imperial Roman edicts. Uh, and these uh, documents survive from texts in Egypt. And the edict was fairly clear. He said, the emperor, all the inhabitants of the Roman Empire, were required to sacrifice before the magistrates of their community for the safety of the empire by a particular date. And when they sacrificed and pledged allegiance and that they complied with this order, they would obtain a certificate to testify about the person who's offered sacrifice, about their loyalty to the ancestral gods and about how they had consumed sacrificial food and drink and to authorize their allegiance. State intervention. Now, it wasn't persecution like other emperors have done of just wielding the knife and horrific atrocities. All that was effective in chasing the church underground. But commentators say this, that... that um, Decius's work sparked a terrible crisis of authority as various Christian bishops and their flocks reacted to it in different ways. You see, the, the target was, was particularly at the leaders demanding that the bishops and officers of the church made a sacrifice to the emperor. If you refused, you ran the risk of worse activity. But such was its significance that a number of prominent Christians did make that act of allegiance and loyalty profession of worship to the Roman emperor. Why was that effective? 
Well, it didn't involve creating martyrs, but apostates. Those who would compromise rather than stand strong. And he'd begun to realize that rather than a full frontal assault upon uh, people of faith, the church, believers, a more subtle way of causing people to deny would fracture the, the church. People would rally around a martyr, but not a traitor. Not a leader who has betrayed. Apostates actually begin to do the work of the persecutor themselves because it compromises at the heart of faith. They'd begun to realize that killing Christians wouldn't get rid of all of them. They'd go underground and they'd grow stronger in their faith. They'd draw together for solidarity. You may not be able to find all of them, but they'd become more motivated. Decius recognized if you can keep the church but cause fracture lines, cause compromise, cause betrayal, the church becomes less and less attractive. And so lessons from church history and from Galatians and, and indeed contemporary, there are four main tactics that cause the gospel to be less than the gospel. The first is, is mess with the message. That's what's happening in the church in Galatia. It was Paul and his preaching saying, this is the good news. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the long-promised one. This is the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells and resides. Repent and believe. This is the grace of God. Stunning in its breadth and shocking in its availability. It's too good to be true. It just smacks against our work ethic, cause and effect that we've got to contribute something. Now this is entirely the free gift of God. Indeed, those who followed Paul couldn't stomach it, couldn't stand it. They said, well, okay, this is, this is something that Paul has said, but it's not everything you need to know. And so they began to say it's Jesus plus, Jesus and. You need to actually believe in Jesus, okay, but you also need to fulfill the circumcision rules. We'll come on to that in Galatians. You need to follow the, the, the dietary restrictions and requirements. You need to follow these particular festivals because that shows your devotion. It shows what a committed believer you are and gains favor. But it's not the gospel. That's why Paul is so astonished. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not, it's actually a different gospel. It's not the gospel. See, what was happening is that the focus is being taken off Jesus, the Lord Jesus, and it's being put onto other things. It's beginning to push him into the periphery rather than be central, Jesus. Something to compete with him. Something is added or taken away from the message of Jesus. That's what happens when the gospel is messed with, so that the power of the message is diluted of its power. What do I mean? Well, if you think uh, across the Irish Sea to Ireland, what comes to mind when you think about Christianity? Guinness, says someone. <laughs> I don't mean Guinness. Division. Catholicism and Protestantism. 
It's not Jesus that comes to mind. In a nation that is told, we're told that loves the gospel, would be labeled as Christian, as Catholic or Protestant, actually, it's not Jesus, the gospel that it's known for. It's for these particular brands. Now, I know the history and why, and, and there are issues around Catholicism and Protestantism, and this isn't in the time, but enough to say that the gospel has been sort of so shifted away from Jesus that it becomes something else entirely. It's messed with the message. In Galatians, the early church, these, these, uh, these first followers of Jesus, they were again and again, there were these people who were coming in and saying, it's, yes, it's first, you've got to become Jews in order to become true believers. You can't be just Gentiles. I mean, don't you know the Old Testament history? God, God chose these people. You've got to enter in through the Jewish route, not to, be, to maintain your Gentile distinctiveness. You've got to become like a Jew in order to come in. The Gospel Plus. It's what makes you kosher. It can be very insidious and very subtle. For instance, in China, uh, with the Cultural Revolution, at first they tried to stamp out the church. Quite effective in many ways, but often it went underground. So do you know what they tried next? To mess with the message? They thought, we'll form the National Christian Church under the three-self-patriotic movement. Let's form a church that is state-authorized. You can go to China and you'll find a state church. As Phil was describing uh, to us when, on his uh, return from his visit to North Korea, there are churches in Pyongyang, state churches. And it seems in the semblance of, is this the gospel? Well, no. In the, in the Chinese state church, uh, they, they, they said, well, okay, there's, there's this church, we can't get rid of it, but let us change it. They founded the three self-patriotic movement, and the purpose of that was to heighten our vigilance against imperialism, to make known the clear political, of Chris, clear political stand of Christians in New China, to hasten the building of the Chinese church whose affairs are managed by the Chinese themselves, and to indicate the responsibilities that should be taken up by Christians throughout the whole country in re national reconstruction of the new China. It's a bit of a mouthful. Policy always is. What was going on there? They were saying, okay, here's the gospel. We can't stamp it out, but we'll mess with it. We'll add to it a whole understanding. If you want to be truly Chinese, you can be Christian, but it has to include being Chinese for the betterment of the Chinese nation. In other words, you shift the focus of Jesus and you begin to say it's about being culturally Chinese as well. It's about saying you can worship God in this particular way, but as long as you're patriotic, at the risk of of rocking some people's boats. You see that in the States, in America, so much. I find it, as a good nonconformist Baptist minister, really quite challenging to go to American churches and pretty much at the front of every church is the Star Spangled Banner. And very often there's a pledge of allegiance to the banner in the context of worship. That American patriotism... At times, you know, you, uh, uh, I'm not going to get onto this particularly, but, you know, you find churches saying, oh, we'll, we'll have gun control, we'll have deacons with guns in the church. That's not because they think the preacher's bad. Maybe it is. 
It's really important for us to recognize in the lesson from Galatians that if we mess with the message, Jesus is disenthroned. That once we start to take things away from the gospel, or we start to add things alongside Jesus, he is pushed out from the center stage he needs to be. It's one of the ways that the persecutor will try to prevail against the church. It won't work, but it's one of his ploys. And the call for us as believers is to stand true and firm to the scriptures and the teaching of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the witness of Jesus. And it will cause us all sorts of ethical difficulties. As a nonconformist, I had to learn about Baptist history and the challenge of, of these early pioneers of which we are kind of in the legacy of, of saying it's really difficult to serve the state and to be a believer. And so early Baptists, I'm not just saying, you know, I'm in danger of being Catholic Protestant of saying Baptists have got it right. I'm not wanting to say that. But what I'm wanting to draw attention to is they're saying, if, if, you know, can you truly be a disciple of Jesus and pledge allegiance to the state and you know, join the army or, or, or all that kind of thing? And they really wrestled with who comes first in their faith and walk. There's no easy answer to this. Can a Christian serve in the military? Can a Christian be a policeman? Can a Christian be a lawyer? Can a Christian be an MP? And, and in many ways, we've worked through a lot of those examples, but it's, it's really important that we recognize that we mess with the message, and in it, the church can be diluted and opposed. The second example is, is of how the persecutor seeks to undermine and... and um, we see it in other places in, in the, the New Testament churches. Compromise the community. I mean, so we're quite good at this ourselves, to be honest. Um, it doesn't necessarily need to come out from outward sources. If, if I'm true in the Western church, this is probably the most likely place that we face challenge of being compromised, of dividing and undermining what Jesus is intending for his people. It's compromising our community. But also there are, there are ways that, that the persecutor, the opponent, will stir that part or also add in things to cause us to trip. The main way that he does it is to sow division and disunity. And when we compromise community, it's the capacity of our church, of the people of God, to become unwelcoming exponentially grows to a new believer or to an outsider. You see, compromised communities rob the church of its power by sowing disunity. No one wants to join a church that's full of infighting, hypocrisy, and hurt. Is that true? A number of times I've, I've uh, met people who've joined or come to the church, and they, there's a sort of standing back for a while of saying, are you like the others? Well, actually, we are quite like the others, really. But we have to try really hard at not compromising our community. It's really, uh, and I was given an illustration of this that came from uh, the Soviet Union uh, when there was uh, in the Eastern Bloc. There was a church family, a, a local congregation that, that was not being persecuted heavily from the church, but the state were very, very aware of what God was doing through it and threatened by what was happening. The church uh, was growing. The church was uh, 
influential lives were being transformed its reputation was beginning to grow and people were becoming interested in what this group of people stood for there was something about the light shining and it had a godly leader many people were becoming believers and there was power and presence and miracles taking place the worship was great prayer was fervent and committed and its witness good The persecutor likes to sow division. How did that happen? Well, because they were agents of the state in the congregation keeping watch, they formulated this great way of doing something about it. The agent of the state amongst the church went to perhaps someone who was a little bit more vulnerable, a little bit more gossipy in the church, and one day whispered about the pastor with no substantiation at all, the pastor's having an affair with a church member. Didn't name who that was. It was unsubstantiated, but the lie began to circulate. Later, as the pastor reflected what had happened, he said he used to preach and, uh, and he would preach and people would repent and believe and, and the power of God would come. And, and there was something suddenly that changed that as he preached, as he was teaching, and uh, nothing in him had changed, but the response in the congregation ceased. He didn't get it. And he would pray and seek God and he didn't understand what had happened. It was only later only later when he'd had to move on that he discovered what had happened. That a lie had been sown and a mindset had been formed based upon that rumor that had caused doubt and division. Rather than that person or the people that had begun to hear it, rather than going and saying, is this true? Fact-checking, finding out. It had kind of been absorbed and believed and held. And the anointing of God upon that church evaporated. A lie in a church family will undeniably undermine the truth and power of God. Half-truths. Now, at the risk of being, uh, you know, thinking this is all very negative, it's sometimes worth knowing the tactics. You flip them over and you find ways and keys for life and growth. Don't you? If messing with the message compromises the church, well, let's hold fast. If sowing division uh, and compromising community is, is a strategy of, of, the, uh, of, our, of the opponent of the gospel, then let's flip it on ahead of actually maintaining unity, of dealing with each other in the truth, of not sanctioning or allowing gossip and half-truth and innuendo or kind of division to slip in. Then... We protect and promote and hold on to what is good. Thirdly, examples of, uh, of, of ways that churches are undermined. And, and this struck me as slightly peculiar, but then I realized the truth in it. It was to promote paralyzing people. Thanks, Vaniki. <laughs> Sorry, uh, the persecutor seeks to put people of power uh, into power, people who will resist the will of God, however unwittingly, thus ensuring that the church can't really grow or people thrive. People get promoted or positioned in leadership who paralyze the church. 
again, I hold my hands up as, as someone uh, in this particular form of church. And I, I do sometimes wonder about our dear sisters and brothers in other forms of the church who, who you know, in the appointment of bishops, the, uh, the prime minister and, and other people are kind of like part of the appointment of key people in the church. Now, I love the fact that God is sovereign and, and prevails and there's some great, great bishops. But I have to say there's some shockers too. <laughs> you don't believe the gospel. But if you want to thwart the mission and the vision of the church, promote paralyzing people. I mean, what better way, as, as the KGB described in, in a document released after the fall of the Soviet Union, they, they just, they, they'd worked out that to, to oppose the church, not full frontal, but to oppose the church, three key ways to undermine what God was doing through them. Firstly, appoint atheists into leadership in the church. I mean, we laugh, don't we? I mean, how ridiculous. People that don't know God but put, put, put in a position to lead God's people. I sometimes meet with my Anglican colleagues and, and they, they sometimes kind of with a long face talk about the PCCs or moving pews. I mean, they seem to be both really bad. And say there's people on the church council. I don't even know if they're saved. And so much of the energy of that church is consumed, subsumed in trying to bring the gospel, God's will, and it's being paralyzed by people who don't believe. Particularly in leadership teams. The KGB also said that the second way, if you can't put an atheist in a position of power in the church, appoint very elderly men. It's true. Why? Because it tends to be that elderly men are more conservative and resist initiative. And they don't like change. And in some cultures, it's true that the, the older generations kind of rightly are often esteemed and venerated and listened to and also deferred to. But if you've got someone in that position in leadership, they're more likely to maintain the way it has been rather than recognize what God is up to right now. The third way, they said, is appoint super charismatic people. I mean, it seems contradictory. Either you appoint an atheist or an elderly man or a really supercharged believer. I mean, doesn't that seem contradictory? But the clever KGB says, actually, if you can appoint someone with charisma or with real vitality but and they're put in leadership, they often don't have any control over themselves. They can be brightly burning for a moment, but they will burn out without control. That They often, even if they don't have a moral compromise, they're often hopeless administratively and create chaos wherever they go. I mean, what better way to thwart the purposes of God than cause chaos everywhere? I see it from time to time in, in the Western church and, and the church in India that I know, the danger of a superstar, the super pastor who builds a church and identity around themselves, not Jesus. Paul, in the Galatian letter and in other places, says, I'm not one of these super apostles that you want. 
You want an all-singing and all-dancing miracle worker who's an amazing orator and is kind of almost on a par with Jesus himself. I mean, they're so astonishingly good on their CV, but you don't want that. You need Jesus and Jesus alone. And Paul often describes himself first as a servant or a slave of the gospel. He doesn't say, I could impose my rights. I deny them. I make myself nothing but to know Christ crucified. The mark of godly leadership. Promoting paralyzing people was the third. And the fourth, if you can't do those first three things, or in addition, support a suffocating structure. The church gets turned into a bureaucracy, locking good people into putting all their effort and energy into maintaining some activity at the expense of what's more important. Maintenance becomes everything. Even when there's good problems. So in Acts chapter 6, so the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. They're not saying waiting on tables and serving the widows is bad. It's just that it's detracting us from what we're really called to do. If we stay just doing that, we're not free to be what God has called us to be. And so they appoint people who can serve and administer that aspect of Christian compassion. Sometimes bureaucracy starts off with a good problem, but it can so, so sap a church. Where is energy and running out of our church? It's one of the things that, that I often think about and pray about, saying, where in, where in my own ministry am I being sapped? I have to say at the moment, it, it, so after Christmas, it was an email avalanche. I took my eye off the ball over Christmas and I came back in January and it's like, oh my goodness, my inbox. And it's just like taking my time. I met with somebody uh, a while back and a few weeks ago, an ongoing meeting, and, and he said to me, um, sitting having a coffee, talking about faith, he said, I'm really, I know you're really busy. And we, Phil and I always say we don't like to be busy, actually. It's not God-honoring. But he said, I know you're probably really busy, and I, I'm sorry for having to add to your workload. And I said to him, I looked him in the eye, I said, this really is what I'm here to do. All the other stuff can go by the by for the moment. This is what we're called to do as ministers, to meet with people and to talk about Jesus and share faith. If I haven't got time for that, I'm not doing my calling. I'm not saying it's not someone's calling to write emails. Absolutely. It's to do with our gift and ministry. But... It's really important that as a church and, and as a disciple saying, are we just maintaining or are we living in where God has called us to be? We always have to assess, does the structure that we have created serve Jesus or does it serve the structure? How responsive are we to what Jesus is doing? If we become so locked into structure, we find ourselves being constrained rather than liberated in the kingdom. So if you, if you kind of reflect on those things a little bit more, you, you think about if you mess with the message or compromise the community or promote paralyzing people or support a suffocating structure, the persecutor, the opponent of the kingdom, loves to do these things. Flip them on their head and you find actually there's keys to life and growth. But in enabling those persecuted, those roots, those channels of oppression to come, it causes the church to become unattractive, to exhaust us, and to repel the seeker or the inquiry or, inquire or compromise 
our witness. I don't want to be part of a church like that in the sense of a human institution. I am a part of Christ's church because he's called me to it. Not just as a leader, but as a believer, I become part of the family of God. One of the promises in the baptismal vow to say, I belong to him and to his people. And wonderfully, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Paul writes and says, I'm astonished that you so quickly desert the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and of turning to a different gospel. It's not a gospel at all. People are throwing you into confusion trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Even if an angel of heaven or, or someone comes to preach another gospel, other than that which has been received by you from me, it's wrong. It's under God's curse. Am I now trying to win approval of human beings or of God? Am I trying to please people? If I was trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I love the fact that the church is growing and the church, not just us, but, but of the church in the world. There's more believers today than there have ever been. Hallelujah. But also to be aware of the constant challenge of persecution that we are opposed in all sorts of ways, sometimes astonishingly brazen and hostile, but actually more often than not, subtle and creative and follow particular channels and routes. Mess with the message. Compromise the community. Paralyze leadership and get it to turn in itself and be structurally bound. Let's pray together.